0: Welcome! We are so glad that all of you guys are here today. We have been so excited and looking forward to this, and it's finally here. So, so glad to see all of your faces. I would love to know who did the first Samuel study with us, like either with us in person or on your own. That's awesome! A lot of you guys. Well, I do want to ease your minds if you did not do the first Samuel study that you are going to be just fine, okay? We're going to make sure to fill you in and get you up to speed. This is going to be an easy kind of entering into, okay? Like how many of you guys have binge-watched a Netflix show like the whole season, like really fast, right? Have you ever had that moment when you're like, oh my gosh, the show is amazing, like like, I'm going to start season two. And then you like find out that season two doesn't come out for a year. And that's like the worst feeling ever, right? And I feel like that's kind of what happened to us because we all were so into First Samuel, we loved it. At the end of it, everybody was pumped, like it was the most pumped I've ever seen you guys at the end of a study. And everybody was like, when are we going to do 2 Samuel? And we had to be like, in a year. So I know for me, when I come back to like a season two of a Netflix show, I'm usually super excited. But then I'm like, "Okay, what was the show about again? Like, who who were the characters? How did it end? And I usually can't remember very much. And so luckily, they always have a recap and kind of get you up to speed. We are hoping that that is what tonight will kind of be. We're going to kind of help give you a little bit of a recap get you up to speed if you were here last year, just kind of remind you of what we learned, and then if you were not here, kind of help you to know what you need to know so that you're ready to go into it. So I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and then we will get started. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us this time that we can come together and just really learn about your word and just... It's just amazing that we get this opportunity, that your spirit meets us in the word and reveals things to us and shapes us this way. God, I pray that your spirit would be present tonight. I pray that you would be leading us, that you would be guiding us, and that everything that happens would be led by you. I pray that you would be revealing things to our hearts that only you can reveal, that this would not just be knowledge that we are learning, but this would be us growing more into your image. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Alright, so we are about to jump into 2 Samuel, but before we do, I want to take a minute and go over some of our goals for the study. We kind of always like to remember, why do we do this? Why do we do the things that we do? The goals are pretty similar every time, so they should start to sound pretty familiar to you. One of my goals is, obviously, we're going to learn about the book of 2 Samuel, right? But more than that, I want us to learn how to study the Bible. I don't want us to learn just about one book of the Bible I want us to learn how to study the bible so one of my goals with every study is to give you tools tools that you can take as you study other the books of the bible and know kind of what questions to ask what kind of a thought process you should go through and be more prepared because i hear from a lot of girls as they're kind of reading the bible on their own that they don't really know what to do they'll say okay i have a reading plan and i read it but what next and so we really hope that as you do these studies that it starts to train your mind into kind of what thought process to go through as you do look at scripture and kind of what to do with the text, okay? So that's one of my goals. You would leave here with tools. You would be a better studier of the word. My other goal is that we're not going to just learn information. I kind of said this when I was praying, but I don't think a Bible study should just be learning information. When we study the Word, we should be formed by it. It should change who we are. Okay, We should just be different people and be more sanctified and, like, into the image of Christ as we study the Word. So that is my other goal as we do this study, that we're not just going to be learning information, but that we would be transformed in a very deep and meaningful way. So those are the goals. How are we going to get there? Um, to explain how we're going to get there, we're going to kind of talk about the study method. And the study method is great because I think it really helps hit up both of these goals. So if you want to take your workbook, if, everybody, if you don't have a workbook, they're up in the foyer. But go ahead and take your workbook and open up to the page, page two, where it says study method, OK? Now, if you've done any studies with us before, this should start to become intuitive to you. This should start to become the way that you think, OK? This is a study method that me and Madison have both learned at different conferences. We did not create this. I don't even know who created it. So I don't know how to give it credit for. But the study method that we like to use and that we suggest that you guys try on your own is the CIA method. So you can kind of follow along. It's going to be in more detail in your book so that you can refer back to this. But whenever you're approaching the text, the idea that we want you to learn is that there's kind of three stages of thinking that you should go through. Okay? The first stage is you should be thinking in terms of comprehension. That's the letter C. And that's asking, what does the text say? Okay, Very straightforward and simple. What is it saying? Sometimes in scripture, that's a very easy question to answer, and sometimes it is not. Sometimes we can look at a text and be like, what in the world is that saying, you know? And so sometimes there's more work required on that comprehension step than others. Once you've done the work and you feel very confident that you know what the text says, then you move along to interpretation, and that's asking the question, what does the text mean? All right, we're going to do some examples to kind of help you to understand this in a second. And then finally, A is application. How should the text change me? We tend to love to jump to application first, don't we? I know it's very, very tempting to open the Bible and think, "Okay, that was a great text. How should this change me? How do I apply this to my life? When we do that, though, we're missing some very important steps. And when we miss these important steps, we kind of run a couple risks. We have the risk of either having a very shallow application at best. Or completely misapplying it at worst. And so I'm gonna kind of walk us through a couple of examples so that you can kind of see the thought process in motion. We really want this to kind of become second nature to you guys. And I would love to know from those of you guys who've done a lot of studies before. Is this starting to like help you? Because I mean, at first, it's like learning a new language. You have to really coach yourself through the steps. But then eventually, you'll just naturally start thinking this way. So the more studies that you've done, you might be like, OK, yeah, I kind of get this. I feel like it's just naturally happening. So I would love to hear from you guys afterwards. Is the study method starting to sink in if you've done several of these studies? So I have an example here in the book. Um, over on the right page, on page 3, just a kind of very simple and straightforward, this is a very basic example, to show you the difference in these three steps. So I kind of put in there, in Luke chapter 8, there's an account of a little girl who dies and Jesus um, raises her from the dead, okay? So if we're going to go through these steps, the first thing that we're going to focus on is our comprehension. A good tool for comprehension is just, can I say in my own words what happened, okay? Can I summarize it? So if I were doing that very simply, I would just say, okay, well, in this story, there's a little girl who died, Jesus took her hand, and he said, child, arise, and she came back to life, right? Very simple, very straightforward. So now, when I go to the next step of interpretation, I would say, okay, well, what does that mean? Well, there's a lot of meaning that I can pull from what just happened there. Like, I can say, well, that means that Jesus is powerful, Like, the text didn't say that Jesus is powerful, but I can pull that meaning from the fact that he raised her from the dead. He must be pretty powerful, right? I can see that means that Jesus is the source of life. Like, if he's able to raise her from the dead, he must be the source of life in order to give her life. I can say that that means that she was dependent on him for her life, okay? So these are all meanings that I'm pulling from the text. Now, this is the key. This is what's going to help our application kind of go next level and go a little bit deeper. When we think about application... When we skip this step, we oftentimes are applying based on, like, our basic comprehension of the text. You're going to get better application if you're pulling your application from your interpretation step. So based on that, what I've just done with these meanings that I've pulled, Jesus is powerful, Jesus is the source of life, she was dependent on him. Now how do I apply that to my life? That's going to be a little bit deeper and a little bit richer because then I can say, well, do I trust that Jesus has the power to meet me in my areas of need? Like, do I look to him as my source of true life, and am I aware of my dependence on him? So that's a little bit more deep than just saying, like, well, you know, Jesus can raise people from the dead, so the application is if if somebody I love dies, maybe he'll raise them from the dead. Like, that kind of misses the mark of, I think, what that story is trying to tell us. And I know that's kind of a very simple example, but I think that as we go through the book, I want you to really see the difference between drawing an application straight away from a comprehension level of the text versus drawing it from your interpretations of the text. It can be much more powerful. So now I'm going to take us through another example. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take something that we looked at back in 1 Samuel, one of our big application points one of the weeks that I know I heard from a lot of you guys stood out to you. And I'm going to show you how we used the CIA method to get there. And if you did not do the first Samuel study, hopefully this will get you excited and give you a little taste about the, the kind of application that we're talking about. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to do the comprehension level of a situation that happened in 1 Samuel. I'm going to just summarize one of the parts of 1 Samuel for you guys, okay? For those of you guys who remember, in 1 Samuel, we kind of have Saul and David. Saul is the first king. He's feeling very threatened by David, who is kind of gaining, like, You know, his reputation is, um, you know, doing really well. People really like him, and Saul's feeling threatened. So a lot of the book, David is running from Saul for his life because Saul is trying to kill him. We then see this situation that happens in the book where God places a deep sleep on Saul and all of his men as they're pursuing David. And then we see David coming across Saul while Saul is asleep. There's like a spear right there. And, like, there's no lookouts even awake. This isn't something that would happen, like, when you're out, you know, like, hunting down somebody. There would be lookouts, especially if the king is with you. Like, for everybody to be asleep, it was clear God made this happen, right? So the the men who are with David are like, David, look, like, God has just put your enemy into your hands. Like, kill him. You get to, like, be the king like you know that you're supposed to be, and you won't have to run for your life anymore. Like, it seems... Obvious. It seems like, oh, my goodness, God has just made all this, like, right? He opened these doors for you, right? But David knew better, and David said, no, it is not my place to kill the Lord's anointed. So that is the comprehension level of the text. I just summarized in my own words what happened in the text. So now let's talk about, well, what was the interpretation that we pulled from that text? What does that mean? What does it mean that David did not kill Saul in that moment? Well, the interpretation that we pulled is that sometimes our circumstances alone aren't an accurate indicator of God's will. Like, we can't just look at an open door and say, oh, that door is open, God must want me to do it, right? We can kind of pull the meaning that, like, we need more than just our circumstances. What did David have? Well, David, he had wisdom. He had intimacy with the Lord. He had knowledge of who God was and what God's character was like, okay? So he had the wisdom and the relationship with the Lord to assess his circumstances, okay? So the meaning that we pulled, what does it mean that he didn't kill him? Well, circumstances alone aren't enough to be an accurate indicator of God's will. We need to have a relationship with the Lord, intimacy with God and knowledge of his character in order to assess those circumstances, okay? So that's the meaning that we pulled. If you're still if this is still not making sense, wait till we get to the application, okay? So how do we apply that? Well, how many times do we decide what God's will is based on if a door is open or closed, right? A lot of times we look and we say, well, gosh, God opened this door, so that must be the path he wants me to take. Or God closed that door, so I guess I'm not supposed to do that, right? Well, I would say that from this text and the meaning that we pulled, the deeper application would be that not every open door needs to be walked through. And sometimes a closed door needs to be torn down, Okay. Now, I know from hearing from you guys that that application really stood out to you. And so I wanted to use it as an example so you could see that that's not an application that you just glance at the text and pull immediately. That comes from first interpreting some meaning and then getting to that application level, right? Now, I've been really struck as we prepared Second Samuel as to like how much amazing application there has been in 2 Samuel. And so I, I've been just like More than any of the other Bible studies that we've done, I've been really excited about the application points that are going to come out in this study this semester. And so I'm hoping that this gets you excited and kind of helps you to see okay, you know, the the, the temptation, we do a lot of heady stuff in these studies. We don't just jump to the heart right away. If you guys have been doing these for a while, you know that. We do a lot of heady work first. And I think the temptation, especially on nights like tonight, because tonight's going to be one of those heady nights because we're setting ourselves up, the temptation is to be like, ah, I don't know, this study's kind of heady. I mean, I don't really feel like they're getting to the heart. I don't know if I really like it, right? They must not care about the heart that much. And I just want to just encourage you guys that the opposite of that is true. We care about the heart. It's one of my main goals is that our hearts will be changed. We love application. And we love it so much, we care about it so much, that we want to make sure that we hit the application points that are going to be life-changing, and they're going to be deep, and rich, and impactful, and meaningful. So we're going to put in the work on the front end, and we're going to do a lot of heady stuff. But on those moments when you're like, ah, this is getting like just kind of, you know, heady and I just feel like it's not really stirring anything within me, just stick with us because know that it's always leading to the heart. That's always the goal. And if you stick with it, that's when you get those gold nuggets that are really going to be life changing. I literally had people tell me after the study last time that that application point that we pulled out was life changing for them. And I think it's because they did the work and saw the process and the Holy Spirit really met them there, Okay, so. I just really, really want us to just be able to stick through and know that we love the heart, it takes the head to get to the heart, okay? So you can see why this th- process is so important to us, like why we love the study method of the comprehension, interpretation, application. And we, again, want you to learn the process and have it be really intuitive to you. And so we've kind of done some stuff to try to help you along the way. And you guys, if you've done a couple studies with us before, you kind of are familiar with this now. But if you flip through a few pages of the actual study itself, you'll kind of notice some of these questions are in plain text, and some of them are in bold. And we do that on purpose. The plain text questions are always going to be the comprehension level questions, Okay. So those ones are typically going to be more straightforward, usually a little bit easier to find the answers to. Not always. Sometimes you still have to dig a little bit. But usually, they're going to be easier to find the answers to. There's usually going to be a right answer when there's a comprehension level question, Okay? Then the bolded ones, and they're indicated on there, like we'll say interpretation. And then we'll give you an interpretation question. And then we'll bold it for application as well. And we do that just to help your mind, one, know what mode to go into. Because if we say interpretation, I want to make sure that you're aware, a lot of times the interpretation questions, they, they don't always have a right answer. Like some of us hate that. We want to know if we got the answer right. Sometimes we just want you to learn how to think about the right things. But there's things that scholars don't even agree on and they all interpret differently. And we just want to train our minds to start thinking critically about those things. So if you get to an interpretation question and it feels really hard and you don't know how to answer it, that's okay. Just try to think about it. Try to train your mind to like dwell on it for a little bit and then move on. But don't obsess over it. It's totally fine. Some of them are pretty, some of them are harder than others. Some of them I wrote and I was like, I don't even know what my answer is to this, but I know it's what I'm supposed to be thinking about, right? So don't feel bad if you don't know the answer to these interpretation questions. And then we also wanted you to see how a lot of times there's kind of a a flow. Where like three or four comprehension questions will then lead to an interpretation question, which then leads to an application question, and we wanted to kind of like you know lift the curtain on the thought process for you guys so that you could again train your minds on this is how you think through strict scripture. Does that make sense? So we tried to do that for you just to kind of help reach that first goal of getting these tools become ingrained in us. Um, the other reason we do it this way is that we have heard from you. I, I share this every single time, but it never changes because every time that we do surveys. Like overwhelmingly, we hear two things from you guys. Like overwhelmingly, the thing that you love most is the depth of the study. Like you think that you always. We've had people say they've, you know, they love the depth. They can't find this kind of depth they can where at the other churches they've been to or whatever. We also hear from all of you guys that you hate the amount of homework. I literally had a survey response one time say what if there was just like one homework question? And I mean, obviously she was joking, but I just, I hope that's clear as we're kind of explaining all of this, that you get the depth because you do the work. And so you, if we took out the homework, if we made the homework less or lighter or easier, we wouldn't reach the same level of depth. However, In writing it this way, where we indicate whether it's comprehension, interpretation, or application, we want to just have you give yourselves permission that if you're in a busy season or have a busy week, um, whether it's the one week of the study or the whole time, if you just feel like this is overwhelming, if you're looking at this book and you're like, what did I sign up for? give yourself permission to just focus on those comprehension level ones because they're a little bit faster to work through. And that way you're still at least looking and noticing the right things and preparing your mind for what we're going to talk about and what we're going to discuss. Okay. Um, But then if you do have weeks where you're able to do more, then push yourself. Do more of those interpretation and application questions. And so the more you do those, the more you're going to get out of the study. But if it's too much, if you don't, I mean, I get it. We're busy. Some of us have like crazy school schedules. Some of us have little kids. Some of us have crazy jobs. And so we want you to come whether you finish the homework or not. Even if you don't do a lick of homework, still come. You're still going to get something out of listening to a talk and getting to discuss it with other women. So I just want you to feel the freedom. Don't feel stressed out. And just um, I just hope that wherever you're at, however much time you have to put into it, I really hope that the Lord blesses you through learning about the book of 2 Samuel. Okay, so that is the study method. Hopefully, you guys who have come in for a while, um, you know, kind of understand it by now. But now that we've kind of gone over it, we're going to start putting it into practice, okay? We're going to work on our comprehension by doing an an exercise. Who can tell me the name of the exercise we're going to do? Come on. Don't be shy. Okay, reading the... There we go. Reading the envelope. I knew somebody had to remember. Okay. We are going to read the envelope. This is something that we do at the beginning of every study. And if you're wanting to know how to study a book of the Bible, this is the very first thing that I recommend that you do. The idea behind this exercise is if you have a piece of mail, it's going to come in an envelope. Okay. On that envelope, your brain takes in a whole bunch of information before you even open the envelope up. And the information that you take in kind of prepares you and puts you in the mindset for what you're about to read. So like on that envelope, it tells you who the letter is to. It tells you who it is from. There's a postmark that tells you when it was written. And even the letter itself, kind of, you can tell what type of letter it's going to be. So, like, the genre, if you will. And so, like, I can tell the difference between a bill and a letter from a friend. And my mindset changes depending on what I'm holding in my hand before I open it. Like, have you ever gotten one of those things that looks like it's a handwritten letter and then you open it up and it's like... There's a sale on our windows, and you're so annoyed because your mindset was ready for something else, okay? So when you take in the envelope, it really does put your mind, like your brain, in a frame of mind for what you're about to read. So this exercise, again, not something that we made up. We have both learned this at different conferences, and I don't know who created it. Um, But the idea is the same information that you would find on an envelope. You're going to find out that information for this book of the Bible. So you're going to answer some questions. You're going to answer, who wrote this book? Who was the original audience? Like, who was it written to? When was it written? And then, like, the question that I always think you should add to that is, where does it fit into the overarching biblical narrative? And so I think when you answer these kind of questions, it kind of just helps you give you a frame of mind so that you're ready, you kind of get some context around it, and your mind is just kind of more ready for what you're about to take in, okay? So I think that I have it on page, what is it, four? Five. Five. Yes, page 5. So go ahead and flip to page, page 5. If you run out of room, there is a, a room for notes on page 8. So you can always, like, you know, if you need to write more. But we are going to fill out the, the envelope for the book of Second Samuel together. Now, you probably remember if you did First Samuel that the books of First Samuel and Second Samuel, yes, they're written as two separate books in the Bible. However, when they were originally written to the original audience, it was all one book. Okay, this is one piece of literature, 1 and 2 Samuel is. They would write it on a scroll, and scrolls were only so long. So whenever the first scroll ended and the second roll began, that is the division between 1st and 2 Samuel. As simple as that. Okay? So you should not be surprised that reading the envelope for 2 Samuel is gonna be pretty similar to when we read it last year for 1 Samuel. So if you did our first Samuel study, kind of consider this a refresher. You're welcome. So it should help kind of brush you up. And if you did not do it, then this will help kind of fill in some of those details for you. So we're going to start with who wrote the book. So with this book, it does not actually tell us outright who the author is. A lot of books of the Bible will say who it is written by near the very beginning. This book doesn't do that, so we don't know for certain. But most people think that it was probably Samuel himself who wrote a large portion of it. However, Samuel dies like halfway through the first book, so we know he did not write all of it. So a lot of people think that other prophets, like maybe Nathan or Gad, probably added to his writing after his death to kind of complete the narrative, okay? So what do we know about the author? Samuel was probably one of the main ones, and then any other authors were probably all prophets. So we should ask ourselves, who is Samuel, and what was a prophet? So we'll start with Samuel. Now, before there were kings in Israel... Israel was led by a series of judges. So God was the king and God would raise up judges to lead them. So Samuel was the very last judge before Israel shifted from kind of being led by judges to being a monarchy with a human king. So he was the last judge before kings began to rule Israel. Okay? Um, we kind of, if you did the judges study, you'll probably remember that the judges started off great and they got worse and worse and worse until it was kind of a big, huge mess. Um, but that book wasn't necessarily written in chronological order, it's written for a purpose of demonstrating that point that Israel was kind of spiraling. So Samuel, even though he was the last judge, he's, he was not like the worst of the worst, like you would think after coming out of the book of Judges. He was actually a really good judge, and we learn that because of the way that he's introduced to us in the book of 1 Samuel. He's always in a very good light. Um, you know, Hannah, his mother, like, has like her song in the beginning. We'll talk about that a lot in the study. Everything about Samuel is kind of painted in a positive light. So Samuel was a, Samuel was a good judge who followed God. So, he was a judge, he was also a prophet, as well as the other authors of the book being prophets. So, what does a prophet, what what does that mean? What was a prophet? Well, a prophet in the Bible was somebody who was chosen by God, and he was supposed to speak God's truth to others. So, they kind of had two roles. They had like a teaching role of just teaching people about God, and they also had like a revelatory role, where sometimes God would say, this is going to happen, now tell the people. And so, they would kind of sometimes say things that were going to happen in the future, during the time of First and Second Samuel, it's really important to know that prophets were the way that God spoke to and guided the nation of Israel. So, like, we have access to the Holy Spirit. We have the Bible to kind of hear from God. Israel had prophets who spoke to God, and God spoke to them directly and gave them guidance. Okay, so here in 1 and 2 Samuel, when the monarchy is established, a king cannot lead under God's guidance and direction Without a prophet revealing God's will to him, okay. So prophets were really important. So that's what we know about the author. He was a prophet. This is what prophets did. He was also a judge. All right. So that tells us a little bit about the author. What about the audience? Who was it written to? Well, most commentators feel that First and Second Samuel are kind of part of a larger body of books, like they're kind of combined with things like First and Second Kings and other books in the Bible. Nobody agrees what all's included in this body of books. But a lot of people think there's a group of books that was all meant to just record the history of Israel. So the original intended audience, when it was written, was Israel. It was written for Israel and Judah to remind them of what God had done for them, okay? So these people, they recorded the history of this nation so that they could remember while also emphasizing how important it was that Israel faithfully follow God, okay? So that's the original audience, was Israel, When was it written? Um, Well, we know that part of it had to have been written during Samuel's life if he was one of the authors. But it was also, you know, most people think that the rest of it was probably written after Saul and David both died. um, But before the Assyrian invasion. So, And we'll kind of get into a bigger timeline here in a a minute. But it was kind of written probably after the deaths of, of David and Saul. And some people think even after Solomon, like it was kind of looking back on these first three kings. Okay, what genre is it? Um, if you're not familiar with the idea of genre in the Bible, it's just the idea that there's different types of literature all throughout the book of the Bible. And so some books of the Bible are letters, some is poetry, some are wisdom. Um, in the same way that I would read a song lyric differently than I would read a legal manual, like I know I, know I have enough li- like literacy in our culture to know the difference between the two and that I should take symbolism more from one than the other, um, the same is true of the Bible. There's different genres. So for us to be able to read it well... We need to have some basic understanding of the different genres and how to read each one. So the genre for 1st and 2nd Samuel is that they are historical narratives. So what is that? Well, in its most basic sense, it's kind of like a history book, okay? It tells stories of what happened in history. However, it's good to know that biblical historical narrative has a bit more purpose than simply telling us what happened. Biblical historical narratives are supposed to kind of tell what happened, but they're also supposed to give a lot of meaning uh, behind the history that kind of acts like a sermon, okay? So there's important theological truths presented in these historical accounts that we, the reader, are meant to discern, okay? So when the author wrote this, he had that in mind. That's why a lot of times Old Testament books, they're not, even the book itself, all the events in it are not in chronological order a lot of the time because they're not worried with just recording history chronologically. They write things out of order because if it serves the purpose more of kind of telling us the theology better, they'll switch things around, okay? So it's always important to know that there's a lot of meaning behind the narrative that the reader is supposed to discern. And sometimes we're told what the meaning is. Sometimes we're told this is what God felt about a situation or this was good or this was bad. But sometimes we're just told what happened and we're supposed to discern it for ourselves. And that's why we like to practice those skills of interpretation a lot in these studies so that we can get better at trying to discern what the author was trying to tell us. All right, so that's the genre. Finally, where does it fit into the overarching biblical narrative? Okay, this is kind of where we're going to camp for a few minutes here. Um, This is tough because I know that we are in all different places in this room, and some of us grew up in church learning a lot of stories. Some of us did not. I didn't grow up in church, so as I've learned different stories from the Old Testament, I've kind of been taught them all in isolation. Like, I've learned a lot of random stories, but it's very rarely talked about as, like, here is how it all fits together. So I think a lot of times... If I can tell you, like, the biblical narrative, you're going to be like, oh, yeah, I know that, I know that, I know that. But you might not know exactly how it all flows as one overarching story arc, okay? So what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to kind of just tell this overarching kind of storyline of where up to where this fits, and even though I'm sure that you guys have heard a lot of these stories, I want you to think through it in the lens of, would I be able to explain this to somebody else from beginning to end, okay? Like even if you know every single story I'm about to tell you, do you feel like you would be able to explain to somebody who knew nothing about Jesus, nothing about the Bible, would you be able to say, this is kind of the storyline of Israel, you know, or is it hard to not just kind of tell isolated stories, okay? So I just want to challenge you, um, if you, if you are one of those people who grew up in church and knew all the stories, think about, do I know it well enough to share with somebody else? So I'm going to give us kind of a bird's-eye view of sort of the big picture of the Bible so that we can kind of see where 2 Samuel fits in, and it'll give us some context and help us to understand what the Israelites would have been going through, okay? So if we have a, like a timeline of the Old Testament... Early in Genesis, the Bible kind of begins with what's referred to as the period of the patriarchs, okay? So this is kind of like where we learn about people like Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob, okay? So that's kind of the earliest period on the timeline. That period of the patriarchs then gives way to the period of Israel as a nation, And a whole lot of the Old Testament is all about Israel as a nation and describing how it becomes a nation, how God makes them his people, and kind of what happens to them, okay? So where we're going to find ourselves is in that portion of the timeline, Israel as a nation. So here is how that nation of Israel starts. Again, this is a lot of Bible stories that you probably know, but I want you to see how it all fits together. So like we said, Abraham's son was Isaac, Isaac's son was Jacob, and then Jacob had 12 sons. Now all of these sons of Jacob, they ended up, out of some crazy stories that you probably are familiar with, they end up living in Egypt, okay, because there was a famine, they didn't have access to food. They all go to Egypt because there are supplies there and they're able to be fed. They end up staying there and they stay there for a long time. So these 12 brothers that are all living in Egypt, they are there with their families and their families grow. And then those families grow even bigger. And time goes on. And eventually they kind of become like so big that Pharaoh, the king of like the ruler of Egypt, kind of thinks, well, this group of people is becoming very large. They might become a threat to me. I'm gonna make them slaves so that I don't have to worry about them. So they will not be a threat to me, okay? So he makes them slaves to prevent them from gaining too much power and becoming a threat. So now, they are in Egypt for a total of about 430 years. So you can imagine how these 12 brothers and their families have grown into a very large group of people. Okay? So now they're no longer just 12 brothers, but they're like 12 tribes. Okay? These families have grown very, very large. And after about 430 years of being there, that is when the story of Moses comes in that you all are probably familiar with. Where God sends Moses to free those 12 tribes of Israel. They're all in slavery, they're in bondage. So God sends Moses. Now, this is probably the most famous story in the Bible. They've made Hollywood movies about it. People who don't even grow up in church are familiar with these stories of how God sends these plagues um, to Egypt, and then Pharaoh finally lets the people go, but then he changes his mind and he chases them, and then God parts the sea, and they get through on dry land, and then he crashes down the waves on Pharaoh and his men. Like, this is a high point of the Old Testament because this is God rescuing these people from slavery and from bondage, okay? So if you're watching a movie, this is the part of the movie where you're probably like, and then they live happily ever after, right? That's what you would expect to happen because look at everything that God did. The crisis already happened, so surely it's got to be good from here on out. Well, unfortunately, that is not what happens. What comes after God rescuing these 12 tribes is actually a lot of failure and sin on the side of these 12 tribes. And that's what the majority of it seems like the Old Testament is about, is how much these 12 tribes fumble and just don't really, you know, don't really stay faithful to this God who just saved them. But before we get too harsh on Israel, I want us to kind of put ourselves in their shoes and think about what like situation that they were in. Because remember, they don't have a history of being a nation. They don't have a homeland to go to now that they're free. They started out as just a family. They started out as 12 brothers. They kind of grew while in slavery, and then now they're out of slavery. And so they have no homeland to go to. They have no experience governing themselves. They've never had to establish order among themselves before. So it's no surprise that they're gonna be kind of a mess. Okay. They don't have a homeland, so they end up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Um, Now, during this time, another story that we're all familiar with, God comes and he gives them the Ten Commandments. Now, we like to think of this as just like a story of the Ten Commandments, but it's so much more than that. Like, this is kind of when God establishes a covenant with this group of people. This is when he becomes their God and they become his people. This is a big deal, so when God comes while they're wandering in the wilderness, he has just saved them like in the, you know, like previously from Egypt. He's making this covenant, and this covenant is referred to as the Mosaic Covenant. This covenant that he makes with them is a conditional covenant, which means that both sides are expected to do certain things. God says, if you worship me and me alone, then I will lead you and bless you and make you prosper and give you victory and war and all of these things, Right? And then God says, but if you don't worship me and me alone, if you go and, like, seek other gods, then the opposite will be true. I will bring, like, disaster upon you, okay? So God is very clear. These are the terms of the covenant. This is not God saying, I'm going to, you know, bring you good things no matter what you do. This is God saying he expects something of Israel. Israel has a part to play, and what God does in response to them depends on what they do. This is a conditional covenant. We learned a lot about this covenant in the book of Hosea, okay? Um, Now, part of this covenant is that God promises, hey, like, I'm going to give you some land. You guys are a nation without any land, so I'm going to give you some land. Um, So he takes them to the promised land, this land flowing with milk and honey, the land of Canaan, okay? Now, when he does this, he says, I want you to drive all of these people out of this land because I want you to be a people who is pure and set apart because, remember, that's the covenant. The covenant is that they will worship him alone. So what is going to happen if they go and live among all these other people worshiping other gods? They're not going to worship God alone. They're going to start worshiping these other gods. So God is very clear. You're going to be set apart. You are my people. I'm your God. For this to work, for you to be faithful to the covenant, you've got to wipe out everybody in Canaan. You've got to drive them all out because you cannot be living among them. Okay, so they get to Canaan. They have a great victory. This is the Battle of Jericho. That happens in the book of Joshua. Joshua. Um, And then we get to the book of Judges, and that's when they start to kind of really spread out all throughout the Promised Land. And that's when they're kind of led by these series of Judges. God is their king. They're led by these Judges. We see very quickly that they are not faithful to driving out the people, like they're afraid, they feel like they can't do it, they just kind of stop trying, and eventually they're just kind of settling among the inhabitants of Canaan and living among them, and very quickly they start worshiping their gods and turning their back on the god who rescued them, okay, so all throughout the book of Judges we kind of learn about what happens here, and there are some pretty dark lows all throughout the book of Judges, as Israel turns their back. They didn't drive out the people. They're not faithful to the covenant that God laid out. Now, that is what brings us to the book of 1 Samuel, okay? So, here's where you're going to get your recap. So, if you tuned me out because you thought you already knew all that, tune back in because here's where you're going to remember what we learned last semester or last year, okay? So, things have been not good for Israel. They're not being very good at being faithful to the covenant, In 1 Samuel, Israel reached a point where they then reject God as their king altogether. Because remember, God was their king, and they were led by some judges. So they said, hey, all these other nations that we're living among, like, they've got some kings, and I kind of like the way their governments are working. We want a king like all these other nations. So do you see how already, again, them not driving out the people is causing them to now want what these other nations have and to reject God. It's what God was trying to protect them from from the beginning. So they reject God altogether as their king. They ask for a human king like the other nations. This is when the period of the judges ends and the period of the monarchy begins. So first and second Samuel is kind of the account of the rocky beginnings of this monarchy. Does that make sense? So like we're kind of seeing the beginning of a new form of government that's taking place. That happened because they did not drive the people out and they are not living according to the covenant. Now, we saw in 1 Samuel that even though they were essentially rejecting God as their king, God is still really involved in the process of choosing both the first and the second king of Israel. So first, God chose Saul. And that was really a lot of 1 Samuel, really all of 1 Samuel was Saul's kingship. We saw all in 1 Samuel the rise and fall of Saul and his kingship. And we saw that God chose Saul based on what human standards would have chosen. He kind of makes clear, the text goes really out of the way to say, he chose him because he was choice and handsome and he's a full head taller than any other man. Um, And so he basically is saying, oh, you want a king like the other nations? I'm going to show you what you're asking for. So he gives them Saul. And Saul started off kind of promising. Like he starts off kind of leading them in this victorious battle. Um, And so we kind of start thinking like, I'm sure the people were like, yeah, this is what we wanted, right? But very, very early on after Saul kind of becomes king, we saw that his heart was not truly inclined towards God. Saul was a lot more concerned with himself and with his own glory. And when God would give him all these direct commands on how to do certain sacrifices and what he should do and when he should do it, he kind of just disregarded it and did whatever he wanted. He really didn't take instruction from God very seriously, and he went his own way. Then when he was rebuked about it, he was really a lot more concerned with his own reputation than with actually being repentant. He would be like, oh, no, like I did something wrong. Please don't, like, please still honor me in front of everybody, though. You know, like that was his main concern. So Saul was mostly concerned about himself. He disregarded God's instruction, and he was definitely not... a A king of the people who ever really followed them the way that the true king would have intended we learned halfway through first samuel that because of this because saul was disregarding god and not faithful god said i am not going to allow your line to remain on the throne so after your kingship ends like when you die your sons will not be king after you okay so he takes away the line of kingship from saul um, then God told Samuel to kind of go anoint this kind of younger teenager named David to become king after Saul. So this happens while Saul is still king. Samuel kind of goes in secret. David's probably around 15 at this point, and he anoints him and says, You are going to be king someday, okay? I don't know exactly how all these anointings work, but there were several different anointings, several times that he's told he's going to be king. But there's about 15 years that go by where he is not king yet but knows he is going to be, Okay? So Saul is still king. David is young and knows he's going to be king. Then we see David kind of came into Saul's, like, royal court. Like, um, he kind of had some skills that helped Saul out. And then Saul becomes very close with him. They become close friends. And as David grows up... He starts to gain the admiration and the respect of the people. He starts to become kind of a strong and powerful warrior. And pretty soon, Saul starts to get kind of jealous and feel really threatened because it is clear that God was with David, but God was not with Saul. So Saul becomes jealous. He starts to see David as a threat. And most of the second half of 2 Samuel is basically Saul trying to kill David and David running for his life. So David's hiding in caves. He's even like having to live among their enemies, the Philistines, and tricking them and pretending them that he had deserted Israel just so that he won't get killed by Saul. So basically a lot of the book that we read was kind of Saul unraveling and David doing his best to cling to God in the middle of while he was running for his life. David wasn't perfect. We saw him a lot of times, not really sure if what he was doing was good or bad, but it was clear throughout the book that God was with him and his heart was towards God. And then the, the book ended, it was such a hard note to end on, but it ended so bleak because it just ends with Saul and his son dying in battle. And then we were like, the end, see you next year. So Saul dies and then now David is now poised to be able to come back. He had been kind of having to hide with the Philistines. Now that Saul is dead, David is able to come back to Judah um, and start to kind of sit in a position of prominence again. So that's where we're going to come in now for 2 Samuel. That is what has happened in the last study. We're about to come in, kind of, we saw in 1 Samuel the rise and fall of Saul during his kingship, and we kind of saw the beginnings of David and him start to kind of grow in, like, faith and in stature and things like that. Now, in 2 Samuel, we're going to get to see the rest of David's story, and we're going to get to see his rise and fall in kingship as well. So that's kind of where we're at. I am gonna take us a little bit further in the overarching storyline though, okay? I know we spent a lot of time in first and second Samuel because again, we needed that Netflix three minute catch up or whatever, but there's a lot in 2nd Samuel that to understand you have to know what comes later okay, and we have the benefit of being on the other side of when Jesus came, right, so we're able to see a lot now, like, looking back of how, I feel like more than almost any other book, 2 Samuel is pointing to Jesus, and it's pointing to the second covenant, okay, so think back about this whole storyline that we've been talking about, how Israel was putting this, like, God created this covenant with Israel, and they're just rejecting him time and time again, they're still, you know, they turn to him turn from him over and over again even throughout first and second samuel they continue to do that on throughout the old testament so um, after they do this for hundreds of years like god was clear when he laid out this covenant that there was something expected of israel they were to worship him alone and after hundreds of years of them breaking the covenant disregarding the covenant turning their backs on god we learned a lot in the Hosea study that God got to a point where he finally had to enact the terms of the covenant and say, "Okay, you Israel have broken this covenant time and time again." God's like, was you know, like you're, God was so patient. And so like he, literally he he waited so long and gave them so many chances, but it finally got to a point where God would not have been being faithful to the covenant if he continued to let them do what they were doing, okay? The terms were clear. So God had to enact the terms and end the covenant this feels shocking to us because we don't like to think of god ending this covenant and there's a lot of theological debate over what really happens at this point of scripture like is the covenant really over or does it still kind of stand like are they still God's chosen people or are they not people are all over the map and so we're not really going to go into that but something happens to the covenant there and it seems like the covenant ends and we kind of even see tangible evidence of that because then after that after god kind of ends that covenant with them they lose their land, like the Assyrians invade and the Babylonians invade, and all of the Israelites have to scatter out of that promised land. And that land was a big part of the covenant. So I think we see, like, God telling them, like, you know, the covenant is over, and then we see the physical evidence as they are then pushed out of the land. This is so important because the ending of that conditional covenant is what makes way for the current covenant that we have in Jesus. Jesus. And this covenant, for those of us who are in Christ, is not a conditional covenant, okay? So it's very different than the covenant that Israel lived in. Like we, like this covenant is not conditional on us being completely and 100% perfectly faithful to God. We mess up all the time, but God's grace abounds. And that is something that is unique about our covenant, the covenant that we are in, is that because of what Jesus has done, this grace will never, ever run out, okay? We want to know about this covenant and keep the covenant that we are in in mind because more than anybody else in the Old Testament, David is a huge foreshadowing of the future and greater king to come, King Jesus. So everything that we read about David should be seen through those lenses of he is foreshadowing Christ. He foreshadows him in the ways that he's great. And he foreshadows him also like in the ways that he is lacking because we're going to see how Jesus is able to do what David was not able to. Okay, so there's like this full and complete way that we're going to see David Pointing us to Jesus throughout the entire book of 2 Samuel, and we even see God create a covenant with David that is pointing towards the new covenant we're going to have in Christ. So that's why I want us to see that bigger picture, because if we're not thinking about the future covenant, we're going to miss a lot of the symbolism in 2 Samuel. It's really, really important, okay? So... That was a lot. We spent a lot of time there, I know, but I really think that it's going to help us to be able to get into that kind of maybe the minds of Israel a little bit more to kind of see where they've come from, where they've been, what's going on right now. And I feel like we have a little more context now so that when we start getting into the text in the coming weeks, I think that it'll make a little bit more sense, okay? We'll be able to kind of understand a little bit more. So... That was reading the envelope. All right. We are going to move on. These next two exercises are going to go much, much quicker. Um, Go ahead and turn the page to page six. This is our outline page. Now, this is another thing that I like to do. Like, say you're studying a book of the Bible, and you're like, okay, I read the envelope. What next? A really good exercise to do after that is to be able to kind of write out a very, very rough outline. And I use the word outline super loosely. Like for me, it usually fits on one page. And it's kind of like, these chapters are about this topic. These chapters are about this topic. And I like to be able to look at an outline so that I can see really quickly, Okay, this is overall the book. Like it helps give you context. Because the same way that we tend to know all these like. Bible stories, like, you know, just in isolation, we do that even when we read scripture. We like to read one chapter or one portion and then we forget how it fits. And I think when you can kind of have an outline to look at and to kind of see like, this is the whole thing, this is the whole book, it helps keep everything in context. It helps you to stop you from taking things out of context. And it also helps as you interpret things, because let's say I'm trying to figure out, well, David just did something weird and I can't decide if this was good or bad. Well, I can look at my outline and be like, well, this is in the middle of a part where it's talking about all of his, you know, horrible things that he did. So maybe that is going to help me to interpret it. So it helps to kind of ground you and to help you to know what section it's in so that you kind of know how to interpret it a little bit better. So. I actually took this outline from a study Bible because it was really, really like just easy to follow and it has like a lot of alliteration so I thought I just liked it and I wanted to use it. So I'm going to go ahead and help you fill in these gaps really quick. And this is what you can refer back to if you just want to say what is the picture of this whole book that we're studying. So for the first section, for 2 Samuel chapter 1, 1 through 5, 6. This section is going to basically be about David's coronation over the kingdom, okay, his coronation. So, like, we knew, like, halfway through 1 Samuel that David was going to be king. So this first section of 2 Samuel is David basically becoming king, kind of how that coronation all kind of comes together. The next section, 5.7 through 6.23, that's going to talk about David's consolidation of the kingdom. Like he kind of starts out like, you know, king of one place and then becomes king of all of it. And he kind of, you know, just brings everything together and makes kind of like this, like he establishes Jerusalem. So there's a lot that happens where he kind of consolidates the kingdom. Then in chapter 7, we're going to see David's covenant concerning the kingdom. So God is going to come and make a covenant with David. And this is that covenant that we mentioned that's going to point us to Jesus. Then chapters like 8 through 10, we're going to see David's conquests for the kingdom. So we kind of talked about how we're going to see the rise and fall of David. This conquests part is kind of like the top of that curve where we're going to be like, whoa, look at David. He's doing so much. He's awesome. But then the curve starts to go down. And in 11, we're going to start to see David's crimes within the kingdom. We are going to see that, yes, David points us to Jesus, but he is not Jesus. He is going to fall short in some very big ways. Then because of those crimes, there's going to be some things that kind of fall apart. So we're going to see David's conflicts in the kingdom. These crimes have some major, major sort um, like effects. They have ripples. And then finally, we're going to see David's conclusion in the kingdom. Okay? So we're going to basically see his whole time during his kingship. All right, so hopefully that is helpful to look back on so that you can kind of see the big picture of the book. It really does help ground you. The last thing is that I want to touch briefly on the idea of themes. And there's a reason that I like to do the outline and the themes side by side. Like I think when we talk about what does something mean, like what does a book mean, you can answer it in two ways. Like, I could say, or like, what's it about? I'm sorry. When you ask what a book's about, you can answer in two ways. Like, if I said, what is the book of 1 Samuel about? I could say, oh, it's about, like, God choosing Saul as king and Saul doing terrible. Like, I basically can summarize it, okay? That's one way that I can say what it's about. That is similar to, like, our outline. I can say, what is the book about? Well, here is a little summary for you. The other way that you can answer what a book is about is based on the themes. Well, I can say that this book is a lot about repentance or this book is a lot about pride and humility, okay? That's the themes. We, I've noticed, so we ask you guys to summarize a lot in our discussion time, and everybody hates it, but we're never gonna stop because it's really important. The thing is, I've noticed when people struggle with summarizing is because we're mixing up and jumbling the themes with the summary. Does that make sense? So a lot of times when I say, okay, can you summarize, if somebody didn't know this book, what would you tell them it's about? people struggle because their mind is going back and forth between the summary and the themes. And people feel the need to start interpreting themes out of it, instead of saying, like, just what happened, Okay, So I want us to really understand the difference and see that these are two different tools. They're two different ways of reading the text and pulling things from the text. And they're going to help us accomplish different things. So it's two skills that we're going to practice. So whenever we say, you know, summarize, We're gonna have this part of our brain activated where we're like, okay, what actually, what are the things that happened if I were gonna, like, you know, just paraphrase or summarize the order of events? But that's kind of, that's again, that's helping us with our comprehension, the CIA, the comprehension. When we start taking it further than that, that's when we're starting to pull out themes, and that's kind of helping more even with like the interpretation part. We're kind of drawing more out of it. And so it's a, it's a skill to learn how to separate those, those two and to know when to kind of draw on one and when to draw on the other, if that makes sense. So the themes are something we've kind of pointed out three. And again, first and second Samuel are all one book, so you should not be surprised that the themes are the same as they were in the last book because they continue on. Um, but we kind of pulled out three that we think are very, very prevalent, but there's a lot more themes. And we want you guys to practice noticing things themes as they come to But the ones that we've kind of pointed out that are still continued on from 1 Samuel are pride versus humility for those in authority. Now, this is a huge part that we're going to see of what makes David so great is because of how he responds with humility. He is very, very good at knowing that God is God and he is not. Okay. Back in 1 Samuel, Saul was was not that way. He was full of pride. So we're going to see this contrast between the way Saul led versus the way that David is going to lead. So I want you to pay attention to how that plays out. The next theme that we want you to continue to notice is that of repentance, another way that David is so great. Because back in 1 Samuel, we saw Saul repent, and it was pretty pitiful. Like we saw some really, really fake repentance with Saul that was really um, focused on himself. So I want you to pay attention now in 2 Samuel to David because he is going to model to us genuine repentance over and over again. And a lot of our really impactful application is going to come from these themes, from how David repents and how he shows humility. And then finally we have the theme of messianism and kingship because like we said, David is this huge foreshadowing of the greater king to come who is Jesus and who is going to rule in ways that David could not. So I really want you to just have eyes for that and start paying attention to to how to notice these themes as they come and start using the themes as you kind of draw some application from this. So with that, we are going to go ahead and break into our groups. We're going to start processing a little bit of what we've learned and get to know each other a little bit better. And then hopefully, after all of this tonight, we'll have a good foundation so that we can jump into our homework, feeling prepared with some context and some background.